This past summer, uh, I had the opportunity to go with a friend to Park City, Utah. The primary purpose of the trip was to study and to write a bit. But since we were there in Utah, in the middle of the Wasatch Mountains, we decided we might as well do a little bit of hiking and sightseeing while we're out here. So one afternoon, we selected a trail to hike, about a mile and a half up the trail, maybe two miles, about a mile and a half or two miles back. Uh, When we got to the trailhead, I noticed a sign that said, this is an easy trail. Uh, It is a beginner trail. And so I, I thought... We ought to be able to do this. No problem. Uh, And in fact, there were families coming down the trail with children and even toddlers. There were people carrying babies in backpacks that had clearly gone up this trail and come back down. So I even made a joke to my friend. I said, you know, if those toddlers can hike this trail, we ought to have no trouble. And he laughed and he said, yeah, I think our chances are good. So we started to hike. And the promise at the end of this trail is that there was a beautiful waterfall set in the middle of the mountains. So we're excited to see it. As we began to hike the trail, I noticed, though, pretty quickly that the pace that I was ready to go was markedly slower than the pace of my friend. And what happened is, as we started the trail, also his wife called him on the phone just to check in. So we're walking up this trail, and he is talking to his wife on the phone, using about half of his energy and still going faster than I can go. Uh, Before we started, I thought that I was in reasonably good shape for a guy my age. What I didn't realize is there was a whole other level of in shape for somebody my age. And he just takes off like a shot up this trail, and I am trying to keep up, but I can't even say to him, slow down, because he's talking to his wife. But I begin to experience all of the messages from my body saying, you have to stop this. My legs are beginning to burn. My lungs are beginning to hurt. I'm having trouble like 250 feet into this trail, drawing a breath. And so I begin to go like this and I'm behind him. And he, all of a sudden he goes, hold on just a second, sweetie. He turns around and goes, is a mile and a half going to be okay for you? And uh, what I should have said was, Can we please slow down? But what came out of my mouth was totally okay, right? And so uh, we begin to go on this this path because I'm too embarrassed to say I can't keep up. And I'm not joking you. He got off the phone after a while and he is just flying. And we would hit the steep inclines of this trail and he would run up them like a billy goat. Uh, He would just shoot to the top and he'd say like, hey, this is uh, easier for me to run because it takes too long if I go slow and I think it's harder. So I'm just going to run. And he would run up to the top. And I tried that once and realized if I try that again, I will die. Right. I couldn't do it again. And so I'm just I'm just thinking, please let me finish the trail. Uh, which I did. Uh, After a certain period of time, we finally got up to the top and we saw this beautiful waterfall and then we turned around and we went back to the bottom. We got back to the house where we were staying and I'm not making this up. We walked in the door and he says, hey, I'm going to go work out. You want to come? It shouldn't be too strenuous. And I said, no, I do not want to go work out with you. I have worked out enough for the rest of my life. I'm done, right? I'm sitting down on the sofa and I am done. And as I sat there, I began to ponder what was it that kept me going even though every muscle in my body was telling me to stop? Why did I not quit? Well, there were a couple of reasons. 
Uh, one was, as I mentioned, I didn't want to be ashamed. Now, I doubt he would have taken me off his list of friends, but I just had this idea that he might think a little less of me. I didn't want to be ashamed in front of the toddlers who were passing me on the trail either. Uh, I also knew that at the end of the trail, there was a reward to be had, that there was a beautiful view. I have hiked a few trails in my time, and I know that sometimes when you get to the end, the view is worth the pain. So I kept taking one step after another, and I did periodically tell him, look, we got to stop for a minute so I can make it to the end of this journey with you. And then we would go again. And I made it to the top because I wanted the reward that waited at the top of that hill. As we read the book of 2 Timothy this morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul encouraging Timothy to persevere. And we will see that often the life we are called to as believers in Jesus Christ looks a lot like that trail. That there are times as we pursue Jesus Christ that every muscle in our bodies, every fiber of our soul says this is too hard, it hurts too much, and we want to throw in the towel. There are times as we pursue Jesus Christ where we will face conflict with the systems and people in this world who don't trust Jesus Christ. There are times that we will wonder, has God forgotten about me because we are in the midst of trial and conflict and difficulty? And we wonder, should I just give up? Because maybe when we began the Christian life, we had an impression of a life that was all happiness and calm seas and joy and peace and our circumstances are troubled and our health begins to fail, and our marriages begin to struggle, and they're not easy, and our relationships with our kids are a trial, and our kids have struggles, and our career doesn't go like we hoped it would when we were young. And so the fatigue and the trials of life combined with the tension of reflecting Jesus Christ in a world that does not love Him causes us to want to say, I quit. I will never forget when I was in college hearing a pastor of mine talking to college students and saying, men and women, as you go through the journey of life, some of you will peel off and quit. Some of you will see your friends depart from the faith and simply say, it's not worth it anymore. And as I have lived, I have seen that borne out in my life. I have seen friends of mine who have said, I'm going to sit out. I'm going to head back down the trail. I'm done. And so Paul calls Timothy to endure. If you remember the context of the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is calling Timothy to be bold as he worships Jesus Christ in Ephesus, but also as he makes disciples. Timothy has been called to the task of making disciples. And Timothy, we know, was a timid and fearful guy, and he was likely to experience conflict and persecution and the trials of life and the fatigue that we all face and be tempted simply to shrink back. And so here in this passage, Paul will say, Timothy, don't shrink back. And here's why I am calling you, Timothy, to persevere, to endure to the end. Here's why. Because endurance is worth the cost. There is a cost to enduring in the faith. 
There is a cost even just to continue to believe. But Paul will say endurance is worth the cost. It doesn't take a profit for me to guess that there are men and women in this room right this minute who are tempted to quit. There are some of you in this room who are tempted to throw in the towel to say, I want to pursue an easier path. Or in those dark nights when you are lying alone, you wonder, has God left me? Because right now, my life is painful. And the circumstance of of my life and the challenges of walking with Him make me want to quit. If you feel that way, Rest assured that you are in good company, that every saint who has endured to walk with Jesus Christ has had moments of doubt, seasons of despair, times of difficulty, where they wondered, is endurance worth the cost? And Paul says to Timothy, an unqualified yes. That because we have a relationship with God that is rooted in the truth of the gospel, we know that when God promises reward for those who endure, He can be trusted to be faithful. And so Paul will tell Timothy, Timothy, you just keep taking the next step. Keep enduring one more day and one more day and one more day until Jesus returns or you go to meet him. Continue the task of discipleship and do not give up. And as we walk through 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13, we will see that Paul provides a couple of ways to endure, a couple of concepts that will motivate us to endure. I only have two points this morning. Now that doesn't mean we're leaving any earlier. It just means that there's only two primary points. On the other hand, this is a bit of a complicated passage. And so as we dive into it, I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Paul says in an unqualified, clear way that there is a reward for endurance and there is a consequence for shrinking back and denying Jesus Christ. And although the details in this passage can be difficult to sort out, The primary concept is this, that endurance is worth the cost, so don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Keep at it. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll start in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned, So how do we endure? First of all, Paul says this, you remember Jesus. You remember Jesus. Where Paul begins is with a restatement of the good news. He starts and he says, look, you remember Jesus. Call Jesus to mind. And here's who Jesus is. Jesus is risen from the dead. He begins with what for Paul was the central fact of the historic Christian faith, which is that Jesus not only died for our sin, but he rose again. And when he rose again, all of our sin for those who believe in him, was removed. And we have the promise of everlasting life because Jesus now rose from the dead. He ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And then Paul moves to the next truth about Jesus. He calls him a descendant of David. 
And what Paul is doing here is he is referencing back all the way to 2 Samuel 7. And he is saying Jesus is the king that God promised to David would come from his line. In other words, God said to David, David, there will come a king who will reign forever over an eternal kingdom in Jerusalem. And one day that king will come and he will reign in righteousness and justice and peace And Paul says, Jesus is that king. So that when we think about Jesus, we remember the one who took away our sin and the one who is returning to reign. And we remember that the gospel itself promises that there is a reward for those who endure. That there is a good ending for those who endure. For those who know Jesus, the end of the story has already been written. Fundamentally, what Paul does is he roots endurance in his love for Jesus. Paul says, I love the gospel. I believe it's true. I love Jesus Christ. So I will be willing, Timothy, to endure, even as a criminal, to be in prison. And historians tell us that after he wrote 2 Timothy, it wasn't too long after that, that Paul was actually martyred for the faith. He was beheaded under the reign of Nero. And Paul says, I will endure imprisonment and hardship and even martyrdom. Why? Because I believe the gospel is true. Because I believe Jesus loves me and I love Jesus so much that I will endure. All of us are familiar with the concept of enduring because of love. Maybe one of the most popular concepts in literature and in poetry and in movies, somebody falls in love and they endure all types of hardships because of their beloved. There is a biblical precedent for that theme in the book of Genesis. If you remember, Jacob, when he fell in love with Rachel, went to Laban, Rachel's father, and he said, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel, the younger daughter. And Laban says, sure, you can marry her. Just work for me for seven years and then I will give you my daughter. And so Jacob did it for seven years. And Laban was not an easy guy to work for, we find out. And yet the text tells us, Genesis 29, 20, that he worked for Laban for seven years. And it seemed to him like just a few days. Why? Because in his mind and his heart, he fixed his vision on Rachel, on his love for her. Now we know Laban tricked him. He had to work for another seven years. But he did it because of his love. There's a more modern illustration of that principle in the movie Big Fish that some of you have seen and some of you have not. But the movie Big Fish centers around the relationship between a young man and his father. And the father's name is Edward. And the the focus of the story is Edward's life. Edward tells his life as he remembers it, and much of his life is uh, told in a ridiculous, unbelievable way as you go throughout the movie. But a large section of the movie centers around Edward's relationship with his wife. And when we first see Edward spot his wife, he is at the circus, and she simply walks by. And as she walks by, the camera stops and it focuses on her face. And he says, you ever hear that when you meet the love of your life, time stops? And he says, it's absolutely true. The problem is when it starts again, it speeds up real fast. And they speed up the camera and she goes away 
and he doesn't get her name. So he goes to the ringmaster and he says, I need to know who that girl is. And the ringmaster says, girl wearing this kind of dress. He goes, yeah, that's the one. He goes, forget her. She's out of your league. She's too good for you. And Edward says, I'll do anything to know who she is because I love her. And the ringmaster says, okay, work for me. And every month, once a month, I will tell you one thing about her. That's my final offer. So the next scene of the movie is this montage of Edward doing all of the worst jobs in the circus. He's the guy that has to put his head in the lion's mouth. He's the guy who is shot out of the cannon. He's the guy who shovels the elephant's business in their pen when they are done. But every month, the ringmaster comes and he says, this girl, the love of your life, she likes daffodils. And he goes, daffodils, right? And it makes it worth it just to know. He comes, he says, she's going to college. He goes, college. And he perseveres the worst jobs in the circus for a long period of time just to get her name because he fixes his eyes, his mind, and his heart on the love of this woman. As Paul talks about Jesus, although it's not a romantic type of love, it is a love that drives him to be willing to endure the worst that the world has to throw at him because he says, I believe that Jesus loved me so much that he died and rose again and he promises that I will reign with him forever no matter what happens in this prison cell, no matter what happens in the future. And Paul says, Timothy, endure because we know that the message of the good news is absolutely true and even worth our lives. And the only way we will endure in the face of trial and persecution and difficulty is if we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who loves us, whom our souls love. The only way to keep going in those moments when we say, it's it's too difficult Those around me who don't follow Jesus seem to have an easier life than I do. The only way to keep going in those moments, Paul says, is you remember Jesus. You fix your eye on the truth of the gospel. About a year ago, I read a book called uh, Thank God for Atheists. And it's an apologetics book about uh, answering all of the arguments that atheists have against God. But what I found perhaps most compelling about the book was the life story of the author of the book, whose name coincidentally is Timothy. His name is Timothy Morgan. And uh, Timothy Morgan tells his story. He says, when I was young, I became a Christian. I trusted in Jesus Christ. And so I loved Jesus so much, I decided I'm going to devote my life to making disciples. I'm going to devote my life to ministry. He went to seminary. He went to the same seminary that I went to. He graduated. He got a job as a youth pastor. And he said, that's when the problems started. Because he said, I loved these kids and I loved this community. And so I began making changes to reach out to our community to draw in some different kids. And I got all of this pushback from the leadership of the church and they fired him. So then he said, I'm going to start my own church. And he planted a church. And after a year or two, the church failed. They ran out of money. All the people left. He found himself broke with no job prospects, no money. 
He began to fall in love with a young woman who rejected him because she said she wanted to focus on her relationship with Jesus. And he said, it seemed unfair of Jesus if I couldn't have her to take her away from me. So he decided to leave the faith. In fact, in his book, he says this, trying my best to serve God had left me broke, alone, and disenchanted. If this was what loving and serving God were like, then I wanted nothing to do with him. So he said, I'm going to live as an atheist. And he began to research all the best arguments atheists had about God. And what brought him back to the faith was the realization that those arguments were not as strong as he had imagined them to be. And he began to realize that the gospel itself has some pretty good historical validation. The gospel itself is not all that unreasonable to believe. And he remembered the good news. And as he remembered Jesus and what Jesus had done, he came back to Jesus. And Paul could have told him 2,000 years ago, I told you so. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, descendant of David. In fact, Paul promises the people of God in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to make disciples, if you want to walk with him for a lifetime, you will experience conflict between the truth of the gospel and the system of this world. And you will experience the ordinary trials and fatigue that life brings. And Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But you, Timothy, you just keep looking at Jesus. And so Paul says to Timothy what the author of Hebrews would say to his people as well. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. You fix your eyes on Jesus, even in the midst of suffering, and do as Jesus did. You look at the price to come. So Paul says we remember the gospel that it is true and that it is unstoppable because of the Spirit of God. In fact, in verse 10, Paul says this, he goes on to say, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. That is because the word of God is not in prison, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Paul ultimately says, I love Jesus so much, and I love the gospel so much, I want everybody to know it. I want everybody to hear it. And so I will be willing to suffer and be imprisoned and even go to my death if that will expand the message of the good news, so that the church can know more of who he is so that those who don't know who he is can hear his name. And if they can look at me and see a man who believes this is true, even in the face of death, and that moves them to follow Jesus more closely, then I'll endure it for the sake of those who are chosen. Remember Jesus. And then Paul will go on to say, as you remember Jesus, You also seek the reward that is promised to those who endure. Verses 11 through 13 are one of the most challenging small sections in the book of 2 Timothy. 
He begins with the words, it is a trustworthy statement, which indicates to most people that this is a song that Paul is probably quoting. This is a poem of sorts. And I think it's challenging because we are not accustomed to reading and interpreting poetry. It's hard for us to grasp and understand. It's not the same as prose. In fact, when I was in college, I had to take a course on Victorian poetry and literature because it was the only English course available that would satisfy my degree requirements one semester. So I took this course and it was difficult. It was a whole semester of mental trial and torment as I tried to decipher Emily Dickinson and Robert Browning and no offense to those who like him, but Alfred Tennyson is the worst. I could not understand most of what he said. Because poetry is not often written in the same way that we're accustomed to reading. It packs an emotional punch. But there are often ambiguities that make it difficult to understand. And we see that here in these few verses. So before we dive into the weeds just a little bit, I want to make it clear that the primary concept of verses 11 through 13 is not at all in question. The primary concept is this. Those who endure will receive a reward. Those who shrink back or deny Jesus Christ will face real and severe consequences. Now, where people argue is, what is the reward and what are the consequences? But the overarching idea is this, that there is a reason to endure. There is value in endurance because God rewards those who endure in Jesus Christ. So look with me at 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 11. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. First, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Now, some people understand this to be saying... uh, Timothy, if you are martyred, then you will be resurrected. Now, that's certainly true for those who know Jesus Christ. But I don't think that's the primary emphasis right here in verse 11. I don't think Paul is talking primarily about martyrdom. Instead, I think what this song is referring to is very similar to what we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, when Paul says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In other words, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you, in a sense, in a very real sense, you died with him. That is, you died to the authority of this world. You died to the authority and lordship of sin and of death. When you trusted Jesus Christ, you, in a sense, died. And when Jesus Christ rose again, you rose with him if you believe in him so that now you are no longer under the lordship of sin. You are no longer under the reign of death and you are free to obey God through the power of the spirit that is given to those who know Jesus Christ. So you do not have to be a slave to sin. In fact, you have all that you need to endure well. If you have died with him, you're alive with him. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are under new leadership. I'll never forget the day that I walked out of my junior high school for the very last time. And as I walked out of that school, I remember whispering a little prayer that when something like this, thank God I will never go in that building again. Because junior high, for me, was torture. 
There were bullies who liked to push people around, who liked to verbally abuse other kids. To be honest, in my day, some of the teachers were bullies. I had a coach. I had one PE coach that I I remember one incident so clearly. I accidentally left a barbell on the uh, bench after we worked out and pretended like we were strong, you know, and so I left it there, and when he found it, he picked it up and he threw it at me. And he said, go in that gym and you run laps for the next hour until we're done. And he periodically came and checked on me just to make sure I was still running and I hadn't dropped dead. And I ran around and around. And so when I left junior high, one of the things I thought is I will never again have to answer to Coach Matthews. And if he comes in here this morning and says, you go run laps, I say, you go run laps. Because I'm no longer under his evil reign. I'm free. And what Paul says to Timothy is, you are no longer under the evil reign of Satan, of sin, of death. You're free. You have a new master. If you died with him, you live with him, you are alive. You have all you need in Jesus Christ to endure. And then he goes on and he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. I believe that Paul is now connecting us back to this idea of Jesus as the Messiah, as the descendant of David, who will come one day and establish a perfect kingdom. He will establish a kingdom on earth that will then extend into eternity and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and all who endure will reign with Jesus. All who endure will have the privilege of reigning alongside of him. Think about what Jesus said to the apostles that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Think of his promise that those who lost or left lands or houses or mother and father in this life, they would be rewarded with more in this age and in the age to come. Perhaps one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament about this concept of reward for endurance is in Luke chapter 19, the parable of the minas. Uh, Minas in Jesus' day were not birds, it was money. They were coins. And if you remember, the master uh, says, look, I am going away. And the master represents Jesus. He says, I'm going away. He gives one guy 10 minas. He gives one guy five minas. He gives one guy one mina. And when he comes back, there's a reckoning. And the guy with 10 comes up and says, look, master, I invested your 10. I made 10 more. He got 100% return from his investment. And the guy who has five says, I invested your five. I made five more, 100% return. And the master to both of them says, well done, because you've been faithful with a few things. I'll give you authority over many You reign over 10 cities. You reign over five cities. And so these men have the opportunity to reign with their master, increased authority, increased responsibility in his kingdom. And then there's the guy with one. And he says, look, I was afraid. I was afraid of you. I was afraid of losing it. I was afraid of what would happen. So I took it and I wrapped it in a cloth and I buried it in the ground. And when I saw you come and I dug it back up and here you go. And the master says, take that one away and give it to the guy who has 10. Because the guy who was unfaithful with what he'd been given loses the opportunity to receive increased responsibility and authority in the kingdom. The New Testament is not at all shy 
about promises of reward for those Christians who endure in the faith. James chapter 1 is a good illustration. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. In fact, even in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the passage we looked at last week, we see this concept of reward. If you remember, there were three analogies in the first half of chapter 2. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Remember, the soldier, he does not entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life. Why? So he can please the one who enlisted him. So he can hear words of praise from his master. All right, the athlete, what does he do? He trains And he competes according to the rules. Why? So he can receive the prize. You see that relationship and reward. And the farmer works hard so he gets the first share and the biggest share of the crops. I think we struggle often with the concept of reward because it seems like that makes us in some sort of a transactional relationship with God, that somehow we can earn God's favor. But as we look through the Scripture, the opposite is the case, because the rewards themselves are simply a greater ability and a greater position to worship Him, know Him, and serve Him. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. See, the reward itself is the culmination of the relationship. And in fact, when we get to Revelation 4, we see men and women who have been faithful to Jesus Christ, and they take the crowns that they have earned, and you know what they do? They throw them at the feet of Jesus. And even the reward becomes greater fuel for worship. And so Paul says, if we endure, we reign with him. And then he goes on and The next line is the most difficult in this little poem. He says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And the challenge is not only that that sounds scary, which it does, but also we say, well, what does that mean? There are a lot of different ways that people interpret that little line. Uh, Some people say, look, if you deny Jesus, if you say no to Jesus, that's really what that Greek word means. You say no to him. Jesus will say no to you, meaning that God will say, look, you have denied Jesus, so Jesus takes away your salvation. Right? That's one way people interpret this. Of course, the problem is that's inconsistent with almost everything else we see in the Scripture about the eternal security of the believer and the freeness of the gospel. That we are saved by grace and not by works. Uh, It also causes a problem when we think about people like the Apostle Peter, who denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, and yet Jesus restores him. So I don't think he's saying you lose your salvation. Some people say, well, this might refer to people who are just pretending to be Christians. And then they deny him, and so Jesus says, I deny you. And that could be. That is a possible understanding of this passage. The challenge is the audience here. 
being Timothy. It seems an odd phrase to use and an odd song to use when we're talking about somebody who truly does believe. And we see that often throughout the letters of Paul, that he's writing to believers. And so we say, why would he say, by the way, Timothy, you may not believe like you think you believe. I don't think that's the best understanding of this passage. Instead, I tie this directly to what he had said in the previous line. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And the idea is this. Again, think about Luke chapter 19. What happens to the man who shrinks back and refuses to continue in what he's been called to do? He loses the privilege of reward. He loses the privilege of reign. He loses the privilege of hearing from his master, well done. And instead what he hears is, you worthless slave, I'm taking away what you had and giving it to somebody else. The scripture talks about what is called the judgment seat of Christ, where every believer in Jesus Christ will stand before Jesus, not to determine if we're going to heaven or hell, because that was determined the moment you trusted in Christ, but to evaluate how faithful have we been with what God has given us. If you have a moment, keep your finger in 2 Timothy and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. I think this passage and passages like Luke 19 say that there will be men and women who know Jesus Christ, and yet they invest their life in things that don't matter, in things that will not last, and they stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and they are saved, but they see the things they invested in go up in flame. And then there are those who will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But then Paul ends with a note of encouragement, and I can hear the audible sigh of relief. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that is even in the midst of our sin, our wandering, our faithlessness, God remains faithful. He remains faithful to his gospel, and he remains faithful to his people. The word of God is not imprisoned and will continue to bear fruit. And God's people can never be snatched away from his hand as Jesus promised. And so we saw Peter deny Jesus three times. And then on that beach after Jesus' resurrection, we see Jesus restore Peter. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Paul says, Timothy, there is a reward for endurance. There is a consequence for denial. 
and shrinking back. Some of you will recognize the name John Stephen Aquari. Most of you will not. Uh, Aquari was a marathon runner at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. He was from Tanzania. He had been sent across the ocean to compete for his country in the marathon race. But about halfway through the race, a little less than halfway through, at the 19-kilometer mark out of a 42-kilometer race, he hurt his knee and he had a hard time running well. There was no way at that point that he was going to win the race. There was no way he was going to medal. In fact, there was really no way he was going to place anywhere but last. But he kept going. He kept running. The winner of that marathon finished in two hours and 20 minutes a quarry finished in three hours and 25 minutes, which is still faster than I could run it in my dreams. But he was dead last in that Olympic field. He came in over an hour behind the leader. And yet as he came into the stadium, there was a standing ovation. And when the reporters interviewed him after the race, they said, what was it that caused you to endure when nobody would have blamed you for giving up? You were hurt. And he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And he became a hero in his country. In fact, when he went home, he was awarded the National Medal of Honor for representing his country, for coming in last in the marathon because he endured. He wasn't the fastest, but he endured because he loved his country. He endured for the prize of crossing that line. And as I think about a quarry, I can't help but think there's such a strong parallel to what you and I are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. You may not be the fastest one in the race. You may not be the person on the mountain in the best shape. But your task is to be faithful to what God has called you to do. To believe in Jesus Christ and to make disciples day after day, week after week, year after year even amidst the trials of life, even amidst the fatigue that often presses us down as we get older, to continue to follow Jesus. For most of us, it is not great dramatic moments of faith or testimony that will be our story. For most of us, it is the day after day after day faithfulness, year after year after year until we see Jesus and we long and yearn to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. Rule with me. Here's your reward. Again, I I recognize that there are quite likely some in this room that are just tired, that are in pain, that want to quit. The message of 2 Timothy this morning is that there is hope and power for endurance and we never can lose the love of our Savior who died and rose again so we can have life, so we can know Him, and yes, so we can obey Him. And all that we need is found in Him. 
so that when the dreams of your career, the dreams of your marriage, the dreams of your family do not work out like you hoped, you know that the power of the gospel is still very true and real. And there is a reward for endurance, for modeling what it looks like to be a disciple who follows Jesus all the way to the end to receive the reward that he promises to those who endure. We're going to close in worship here. And as we pray and then close in worship, each person just in your own heart and mind, pray, God, allow me the strength to be faithful today. And then wake up tomorrow. And if that's your entire devotional time tomorrow, say, God, give me the strength to be faithful today. And do that the next day and the next day and the next day until you see Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this time. And we are convicted that all too often we are tempted to shrink back. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we're faithless. And yet we know that you are always faithful. And so we pray, give us the strength to be faithful today. Give us the strength to be faithful tomorrow to take the next step and run the race well. Father, we know that you're with us because you promised to be with us. And so we pray we would believe that and walk with you to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.